Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. From Vice and Brent 2020, London Borough of Culture, this is Vent Documentaries. Young people from one London borough telling you the stories we care about. This is series one, where we're talking about identity. I'm Amelia. I grew up in Brent, a really diverse borough in London. Then, two years ago, I moved from Brent to Surrey, a small quiet town outside London. And I was outnumbered by white people for the first time. So we're now in Guildford, which is in Surrey. Um, yeah, my producer Jess has come to visit. So we're just gonna go on a quick whistle stop tour around Surrey. So this is the station. <laughs> I came to Surrey for uni and life as I knew it changed. Shops close at 6 p.m. The bus drivers are white and everything's uphill. So we're now along just like, we're coming near the high street. So we have um, one of the clubs called Pop World, which is really, really shit. <laughs> My friends are different now too. Hey, I'm Breeze. I'm 21 and I work with Amelia at Topshop. I love Breeze. She's one of those people you meet and just vibe with. Breeze is white and grew up in a village just outside Surrey. Our life experiences are mad different. I grew up in Brent, which is a borough in London, and it's really culturally diverse. I was around all races, all different types of people. Yeah, when I came to Surrey, it was like, wow. What about you? What's it like? Mine's the, like, growing the up in Surrey. <laughs> so, especially because I live in Ash, yeah. that's a village. Like, there's a train station, that's about it. Mostly white people. Is a lot of like the traveller community in Oh, Ash. wow. Yeah, like my school that I went to was pretty much half travellers and then half like not travellers. So like, when you were growing up generally in Ash, like did, was race something that kind of bothered you? Did you think about it? Yeah, no, not definitely nothing that bothered me. Not really anything I thought about. I didn't really know how much of like a problem like racism was mm. either. So I was like more like naive. Do you think it's because like you didn't have anyone or many people in like that area who were of like a completely different race to you? Yeah. So you just didn't really like have to see it. it was yeah. Like, like, like outside, outside, out of mind kind of. Yeah, thing. kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Literally that, that's <laughs> yeah. what it is. Because of the amount of cultures and stuff like that, and religions as well mm. in London, like you'd hear about a lot of things to do within the workplace, especially like with um, like institutional racism or like the prison system and the justice system as mm. well. And crimes and things like that were often associated to people of a minority um, ethnic background. We kind of had a sense of what racism was really, really young. So for me, like primary school years was when I was like figuring out 
race and stuff like that. Like when my mum would say to me things like, be careful. And I'm like, I'm five. Like, mm. what am I being careful for? So I think it was so different for us That's growing so up. Yeah, it's like, it's like kind of all we know. Whereas it's, it's so weird for me to think like people who don't live in London, mm. um, like just haven't, not like have no idea, but they're like almost like an ignorance. Yeah. Like yeah. in a level of ignorance, but it's kind of blissful. I say like, it's like a bit of sweet. Like yeah. they're kind of just chilling. They have no idea what's going on. Like, So what is it like for you coming to Surrey and like being pretty much surrounded by like white people? When I first came, um, I was excited obviously to get away from like the business of London because life was like really hectic. So I came to uni and because they have like um, societies like the ACS, which is the African Caribbean Society, I thought, oh, cool, like that's Mm. fine. But then I got on my course and I do English Lit. Yeah. with creative writing literally I'm one of four black people in my course mm. because like not that I felt any kind of anxiety around white people but I just thought there's literally no one else that I can relate to and I was like whoa like this is like more intimidating than I thought it would be like I wouldn't, didn't think it was that deep until I actually got in the situation and it kind of affected like things like group work and stuff like that like I wouldn't necessarily be people's first option to be chosen because they like made their friends so much sooner and they have different things in common and stuff like that like even just down to like different lingo yeah. I'd be like well I don't even know how to talk to you oh so, yeah no it was really weird like yeah it was it was a lot it was a bit overwhelming actually I felt like I had to go out of my way to maybe change how mm. I spoke that just body language or seem mm. more interested in what they're talking about even if I really didn't give a shit yeah like, just I was, to like make it easier yeah just to make it easier for me so that we can get the work done mm. so it was like I need to like maneuver myself like it was hard it was really hard to be honest God. Talking to Breeze, I kind of realised that a lot of the discomfort I was feeling being around white people was at my university. Working at Topshop, everyone there is white too, but I still feel on a level with them. Race doesn't play a huge part on our friendships in the way I thought it would. Why is it that at uni, I feel so aware of my race? I went to uni like over 20 years ago now. I wanted to know if it's just me who feels like this or if loads of people feel the way I do. I'm Nick Shukla. I am an author, screenwriter and I'm so much older than you. <laughs> Nikesh grew up in Brent, like me. He was the first person in his whole family to go to uni. It's not like anyone could sit me down and go, listen, Nikesh, this is what you got to look out for at university. And, you know, there's this sort of stereotype of like, oh, all the Asian people know each other, all the black people know each other. And it's because like when you arrive in a space and you kind of don't know people and you do that minority head nod, then you just end up being friends. And so you kind of all do know each other. And so like it is sort of that stereotype that we all know each other is sort of true, but it's sort of because of a self-defense mechanism. Nikesh said that this discomfort that he and I have felt at being outnumbered by white people is super common. Whenever I meet, uh, and I'm using this as a like a purposefully silly term, whenever I meet unicorn ethnics who are like people who are from minority backgrounds who are like the only one in the school or in the village or in the town and whatnot, they just seem so beaten down by that experience that they've either had to kind of hide the, their true selves or the presence of another person who looks like them makes them uncomfortable and th- that's always kind of a weird thing to see 
there's an amazing writer called Carl Anker who wrote um, a piece for BuzzFeed about five or six years ago where he basically wrote a letter to his brother uh, on going to university and like like it was his 10 rules for basically like how to cope with how hard it is being black in those spaces. One, a lot of the world isn't built with you in mind. Two, many people will have never met someone who looks like you before. Three, this means you're going to get judged a lot. Four, based on what they've seen on screen. You owe Will Smith a thumbs up. Five, and maybe a slap. Six, you'll get offended. But don't forget, and you'll often totally let in your right Unfortunately, both barrels. It takes time to learn Eight. when you're allowed to get angry about things. But even when it's the correct time, you'll sometimes get slapped down anyway. Nine, everything I've told you very much sucks. Ten, and I'm very sorry for that. Things are getting better, and I have the utmost faith in you. It was one of the best essay online essays I've ever read, and it's something that I like referred to quite a lot because it was so beautiful and it was so honest and it was also so so vulnerable and brittle. And you could you could tell with each sentence and each bit of advice that all of this advice was I experienced this and I had to kind of learn the hard way how to recalibrate. This is this is how you don't have to suffer as badly as I did. I always argue it's more about how people respond to you rather than how you respond to them. Yes. Um, that's, that's the big thing. This is Winston Morgan, reader in toxicology and clinical biochemistry and director of impact and innovation of his school at University of East London. Winston studies the relationship between race and university grades. It's not good. Basically, the percentage of... BME students, particularly black students, attaining a good degree, a two one or a first, or significantly less. Between 15 and 30% less than white students. That's called the BAME attainment gap. Although now we're trying to change that name from the attainment gap to the university awarding gap. And the reason we've done that is because if you say the attainment gap, you're saying it, the degree you get is solely down to the student's efforts and ability. Whereas when you think of the awarding gap, you're basically thinking it's raised. It's less about the student's ability and effort, and more about what the university, mm. if you like, the environment the university um, awards the student. These facts aren't new. People have been talking about the BAME attainment gap, or now the BAME awarding gap, for decades. The first thing they did was they adopted what we call a student deficit model. Interventions to sort of help students with academic skills and belonging because they thought that was the reason why there is an awarding gap because the you know students don't have the academic skills, particularly black students, to, to be at university, which is wrong. So people tend to say, right, it must be because they didn't come in with the right qualifications or the, they didn't have the right background. The research shows that what actually happens is... To get into Russell Group University as a BME student, you generally have to score higher. But when you leave, you're still going to end up with, if you like, an awarding gap. I just had to deep that for a second. Black students often have to get better grades than their white peers to get into top-level universities. But then, statistically, they're probably going to leave with a worse degree mark. It takes the piss. Despite all this evidence, a lot of Winston's time is still spent trying to convince other academics that the BAME awarding gap is a real thing and the onus needs to be on them to fix it. When academics say, oh yes, um, we do anonymous marking and that kind of thing, 
by the time the assessment has been yeah. done, it's too, too late. Good. So yes, you know, you don't have to be biased by the time you mark because the bias took place in the lecture, in the support that you gave, the feedback that you gave, that kind of thing. Mm. But the focus now is definitely switching to what is the university doing to ensure that their staff are well trained mm-hmm. and they're assessing BME students in the appropriate way. Our university actually tried to do that with these like focus groups so they actually targeted mm-hmm. just black students to come and sit and speak for about an hour with like the chair or the board of directors when it comes to the S like student union and it was so good like to be so filterless and honest about maybe like the lack of support for us so what they really need to do is also then meet with the academics mm. what they what they're effectively doing is asking you to solve the problem but the problem isn't really with you. It's with, as I said, the people who are teaching right. you and supporting you. Sometimes academics don't even realise they're doing it. Sometimes they may feel it's easier to talk to student X than to talk to student Y. So, and also, I mean, there's been there was one sort of like really good study about um, BME students tended not to go and see their lecturers outside the classroom, whereas white students did. Yeah, it it is true, but. The suggestion was it was the student's fault. Going back to this awarding gap thing, you didn't do what you should have done. You didn't go and see your lecturer. And the reason students tend not to go to see their lecturers is because they believe they won't get the support or the lecturer won't be welcoming or whatever, for whatever reason. And have you, like, so mm-hmm. have you ever spoken to any, like, of your black students, for example? I never speak to black students. <laughs> I'm only joking, yeah. You'd be surprised how... F- few students actually know about the awarding gap. Mm, but I think I think it would be wise to like advise that there is a chance that you might actually not achieve to the way that you'd want to mm. work. No, but, so, but you see, but see, even you, you've just used that language. You're saying that you may not achieve. There's a possibility that you may not be awarded um, at the level you should be awarded. It, it's a, it's a complicated one. It's just, are you going to be recognised for your achievements accurately? Yeah. But do you feel as though the, the awarding gap actually continues beyond education, so like in the workplace as well? Well, yes, as I said, because we live in a racialised world, all the awarding gap is is a reflection of this racialised world we live in where people assume that based on your, your phenotype, your physical characteristic, how you are able to think, how you are able to work in a social situation, all of those racialised things mm. are linked. So whether you're in the university or in the workplace, those things will continue next hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're back. My dream job basically is just to continue being a presenter um, and go into like broadcast journalism as well. What I'm trying to do is stretch culture enough that we can all kind of find the versions of ourselves that we want to exist in it. Nikesh Shukla never be told oh this is too niche or this isn't relatable or all the rest of it because my answer to all of that is relatability is white privilege and all the rest of it. Nikesh had this one class at uni which shapes how he treats his career as a writer. He studied law 
and had a module on human rights. And it completely changed my life. I saw the world in a new light. I saw the world through the lens of thinking about others rather than thinking about me and making money and, and doing this and uh, for, for all the wrong reasons. And it just made me realise that actually what I wanted to do was help people. As the first person in his family to go to university... I was shown what opportunities that people who are in those sorts of environments can have. And that was really, really interesting because it made me then go, well, actually, I want to use that opportunity to kind of help other people, help my community, help the people who didn't have the opportunities that I have. So, when he left uni, Nikesh started developing as a writer, but promised himself he'd only work for charities and non-profits while he was waiting in the wings. I was a youth worker for a long time. I was working on a magazine in Bristol and I was mentoring a bunch of writers. An editor once said to me, oh, I love your I love your writing. I love its energy. But could you apply this energy to a story about a rural detective? And I nearly did it. I nearly wrote a rural detective novel, but it would have been terrible because I, like, what do I know about rural detectives? Nikesh stayed true to himself. You know, I was mentoring Liv and uh, Varidza and Antonia when they were setting up uh, Galdem. And out of all of that work, I was just like, what can I do in literature that's sort of similarly minded? And that's when The Good Immigrant happened. A fucking great book that Nikesh edited. 21 essays by black, Asian and minority ethnic writers from across Britain working in literature and the media. And once The Good Immigrant was a success, and if it hadn't been a success, this would have been a, this would be a different conversation. Um, but because The Good Immigrant was a success, no one can tell me what to do now because I have shown that I can bring an audience and ultimately the best thing for me to do is what I want to do. That's been really, really freeing for me. But you can't restructure a whole industry with one book. Even though Nikesh is helping push against the structural racism he sees every day in his job, his own success doesn't automatically change things for everyone. The thing that I noticed when I did The Good Immigrant, I did The Good Immigrant as a community building thing, but I noticed that all the opportunities kept coming to me. And I realised that actually that was just how dull the industry is, is that they see a book, they see books be successful and they're just going to go, OK, first we're going to go to Renieto Lodge, then we're going to go to Akala, then we're going to go to Nikesh. Like, it's, it's like I'm number three in the range of no's. Let me tell you how many times I was asked to go on TV and be a public intellectual commentating about the Windrush generation. And I'm like, obviously, immigration is a huge topic and it's very important to me and my family. But there are people who are, you know, this is their community and those are the people you should be speaking to. And so my rule always became, who are five people who I can suggest? Who are five women of colour who I can suggest who can do this? So I would never say no. I would always say, I can't do this, but here are five people who you should speak to. And that was my way of just going, you can never tell me you don't know where the talent is ever again. We have to support each other. We're not in competition with each other. And we've been pitted against each other for the longest time by there only being allowed to be one. And now we can have more than one. Let's all work together to have as many ones as possible. I can't help but notice that Nikesh is describing a situation where it's people of colour doing all the work to create opportunities for each other and make sure everyone is represented, while the probably mostly white producers of these new segments and other things are doing the bare minimum. And the thing about holding people to account is you kind of go, well, what is, what is your long-term strategy? 
because we've been talking about this for 20 years and we keep talking about these sort of short-term solutions, but what is your long-term strategy so that in 20 years' time you're not asked this question again? That's how you need to think about it. I needed to speak to someone whose actual job is to have a long-term strategy for addressing issues of diversity in the media. So I spoke to Bob Shannon. He's the managing director of the BBC and the person who's ultimately responsible for diversity and inclusion within the organisation. What would you like to know from me? I started by asking Bob about his career and how he ended up in such an influential position. I mean, I've actually worked at the BBC for a long time and in media for a long time. So when I finished at uni, I started working in a local commercial radio station. Yeah. I started in that and then I went to the BBC and I worked in the sports department for a long time. I had a whole great career working in sport and I was head of, head of sport for the BBC. Oh, wow. Running okay. TV and radio. So, I mean, just great fun. And then I spent the next seven years running Radio 5 Live. That was great fun. Then I left the BBC for a year. Okay. Um, and I went to Channel 4. And then I came back to the BBC because it needed to have a new person running Radio 2 and 6 Music. Right. And I fancied it. Bob went from the world of sport to the world of music until about three years ago when... I was given another job running all of radio, not just Radio 2 and 6 Music, all of BBC Radio and all of BBC Music until just over a year ago. And a year ago, I was appointed to be the managing director of the BBC, um, kind of running the BBC, which is why probably the issue of inclusion and diversity has become really, really prominent in, in yes. my working life because this is the first time I've had to think about the whole of an organisation. So then I kind of want to get into the nitty gritty of it, if you don't mind. Um, do you know your like statistics of diversity at the BBC currently? Yeah, broadly. For us, you know, diversity has a number of different forms and we have a number of protected characteristics that we consciously monitor in the organisation. Right. And one of which, of course, is the makeup of the ethnicity of, of our teams. Where do you see the greatest amounts of diversity? Do they like tend to be in the lower paid roles and jobs or is it kind of mixed within the higher um, jobs as well at the BBC? No. no, your instinct there was right. If we're talking about um, ethnic diversity, just for a second now, yeah. we do relatively well at the sort of entry level. Within BBC Radio, we've got a BBC Asian network and we've got Radio 1 Extra. Those stations tend to have quite young people and they tend to be at the beginning of their career journey. Mm. Our biggest challenge is when those people have completed their first cycle of work in the BBC. Yeah, do they stay on? Or? Do they stay? My worry would be that too many people look around the BBC and think, oh, hang on a minute, I don't feel this isn't this organisation might not be for me. They're amongst the first to go. We need more BAME senior leaders. Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges for the BBC is socioeconomic diversity. Yes. It's a very middle-class organisation. Yeah. Bob knows that the BBC is a very white, middle-class place. And even though they have schemes aimed at bringing in diverse talent, 
there are problems with retaining people like me when we do come to work there. But he says the organisation is changing. I'll just take you back to last autumn. You may remember there was a big story about the BBC apparently reprimanding one of our presenters for speaking uh, out of turn about Donald Trump. It was the presenter, Naga Munchetti. Oh, yeah, no, I do, I do actually think... There was a big it. storm about it. And yeah. The reason I mention it is because, um, actually, the Director-General of the BBC overturned that decision and said... You know, right. Mm-hmm. I thought that was quite an, in, an, an interesting indicator. And what it did was it was like a cold bucket of water into the corporate face of the BBC to make mm. us realise that we've still got a lot of work to do to make sure that the BBC feels truly inclusive. I hear this, but also I don't know why it took this particular incident to be the cold bucket of water on the BBC. The organisation has lacked diversity from the beginning, so I don't know whether to feel encouraged by what Bob is telling me or disheartened that for all the talk about diversity, people of colour are still underrepresented and don't always feel welcome there. I know that I've kind of mentioned quite a few times that I'm like constantly having to think about my identity in terms of work um, and being taken seriously as a black woman. Do you feel like that's any different to your experience? And do you feel like your identity necessarily played a part in like the jobs that you managed to secure for yourself and just the way that your career has just kind of like gone on an upward spiral? I think if you've grown up from a, a comfortable middle-class background, and um, you've been to Cambridge University and had some of the opportunities that I've had in my life. Yeah. I think what it probably does is it instills a sense of belief and that the opportunity is there for the taking. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I think it would be I think it would be ludicrous for me not to argue that those things have been an advantage for me. I, I kind of cling on to the hope that I've been quite good at some of the things that I've done as well. There are two obvious reasons why this is an important subject. One is because yeah. it's the right thing um, that we should do. Right. The other is because it makes sense in a modern media company that we should have people who reflect the people we're serving. That fact is so universally understood now. You know, there aren't any corners of the credible media and creative world that that haven't embraced this. I was always told that I was too much. I mean, it happens to black British people again and again and again and again. The black British people are incredible. (laughs) (laughs) This is Gemma Kearney. She's a broadcaster who's presented on BBC Radio One, Six Music done documentaries, TV, started her own production company. She's a writer. And a big, excitable puppy when it comes to life, even though I'm a grown woman. She's basically an OG in the game. That's so nice. She's had the kind of career I aspire to. I was hoping she'd have some good advice for me as a black woman who's been navigating the media industry for years. I started when I was 23 and I didn't even really know that sexism and racism was as complex as it was. Yeah. Did you ever feel like you were like treated differently based on the fact that you're a woman and also a woman of colour? 
Oh, cool. I was so excited when I first started. <laughs> yeah. I was also in a family because I started on One Extra. Trevor Nelson was my co-host. He was an amazing mentor. Oh, my mentor. God. Trevor Nelson. I know. He was an yeah. amazing mentor to me. We instantly clicked. It was only a bit later, maybe a couple of years in, that I realised that suddenly a lot of my peers or a lot of my colleagues were male. Mm-hmm. There's been stuff like that I wouldn't say in a podcast. But you get treated really badly. But you build resilience, firstly. Mm-hmm. Your gut instinct gets stronger, so you know the types of people that may treat you like not, but not, not very nicely. And um, use it for your fire. <laughs> yeah, it just kills the fire, innit? So how do you feel about, like, people really understanding, you know, like, unconscious bias and the reality of like challenges that women of colour face within the business. Like, do you feel like the people that like, empower like the big dogs basically, do you think it matters if they understand it or not? Especially like white men or white women who are above us as well. Inside, in my heart, I think that it is important that people go on a journey to shift unconscious systemic racism. Right. You know, I don't think anyone could say that they haven't, you know, unconsciously like done something or and I do think especially if you are a white male at the top etc you probably stereotyped at least at one point (laughs) I went to the Sony Awards once which it's like the Oscars of the radio world and I'd been persuaded to wear blue lipstick oh gosh there had been a Beyonce video that had just dropped and she'd worn blue lipstick I can't even remember what song it was I turned up on Trevor's arm with blue lipstick and he was just like you're so weird yeah (laughs) I was like where is your sense of fun (laughs) you gotta remember that the Sony Awards is a sea of mostly white men in black suit Mm -hmm. a sea of balding heads it's actually hilarious <laughs> and I'm in blue lipstick really young really nervous and I started to feel like an idiot I was at a really fancy five-star hotel there were chandeliers everywhere I looked up and on the table opposite me was a face that I was always really inspired by and quite in awe of and it was Lauren Laverne she just looked at me eye to eye from the table and just just mouthed at me your lipstick like you look amazing just that it was just a moment where I was like I am appreciated somebody gets it it's okay to be different and push the boundaries Mm -hmm. just given that confidence to experiment and basically to be me I think finding a mentor whether you officialise it or not isn't necessarily that important. But keep your eyes peeled for the people in an organisation or a company that know how hard it can be Mm -hmm. and that just give you a big up. I had an interview not long ago with Bob Shannon from the BBC. I know, Bob, yeah. Yeah. I, I felt like, you know, the conversation went well. Obviously, he didn't necessarily answer all my questions directly. But he seemed really open to that idea that, like, there is still a lack of diversity. I'm so glad that these conversations are happening. Yeah, And I'm glad that they're happening with a 20-year-old student and 
essentially one of my big bosses. I actually want to go into like broadcast journalism and as a black woman, you know, it's just twice as hard to get half of what you want, really, especially in the world of media and like media that's dominated by white men, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I kind of really need to have these conversations in order to like just prepare for what I know is inevitably going to happen unless like drastic changes happen. I'm thinking at the moment the narrative can be different. The lid has been flipped, the stats are there. We exist, we still exist, we're still exactly. here. We, as women of colour, unfortunately, rather than inevitably, I want to say unfortunately right right mm-hmm. now in the present, yeah. have to work harder. Mm-hmm. And it's gutting, it's gutting. But the paradigm is changing. The path that we want to tread, the particularly a career path, okay, mm-hmm. doesn't have to be like anyone else's before us. That's true. Be prepared for those moments of adversity, mm. but also listen to your cut. I'm excited for you. And if you yeah. like ever want to ask a question, drop me an email. And if I don't respond straight away, drop it again, right? <laughs> I've got you. Yeah. We're not on the path alone. A piece of advice I got really early on that has stayed with me all these years was that you're the first customer of anything you do. I really like that. You've got to be, believe in yourself in terms of your drivers have to come from you and not other people determine, you know, who or what you can be. Get in touch and send me some writing when you're ready. Don't feel like you have to send it to me like tomorrow, but like when you're ready, when you've got something you're, that you're ready to share, I'm here. Thank you for listening to Vent Documentaries. I'm Amelia. Vent Documentaries are produced by Jess Lawson and Arlie Adlington, with help from Amelia Gill, Maweed Majid and Kamaya Shea. Our music is from WMP Studios. I read quotes from Carl Anker's essay, 10 Things I Wanted My Little Brother to Know Before He Went to University, from buzzfeednews.com. That's C-A-R-L-A-N-K-A. Vent is a collaboration between Vice and Brent 2020 London Borough of Culture. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.